T-minus 10, 9, ignition sequence starts. Coming to you from a small undisclosed outpost somewhere in Radioland, it's Because I Said So. Parenting advice with love and leadership from the nation's leading parenting expert, syndicated columnist, author, conference speaker, and the only psychologist to point out that psychology has caused more problems than it has solved for American parents. John Rosemond. People like this are a menace to decent society. Call in now about anything from toddlers to teens, even your 20-something toddlers who refuse to stop sucking on the pacifier of your standard of living. Let's not talk about it in front of the boy. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. From American Family Radio Network, here's your host, John Rosemond. Welcome to the show. We're called Because I Said So. I'm your host, John Rosemond, and our number is 404-419-6499. If you want to call the show with your questions and comments, you can go to my website at johnrosemond.com or my other website at parentguru.com, my newspaper columns, my newspaper column archive on parentguru.com. We're all about parenting and family issues here, and I want to start out uh, by talking about something unusual, uh, certainly would be unusual to talk about on your normal Christian radio show, and that is something called koans, K-O-A-N-S. These are concise allegorical poems that use descriptions of nature in order to illustrate philosophical principles, and that's um, right off Wikipedia, folks. Concise allegorical poems that use descriptions of nature in order to illustrate philosophical principles. And this is one of the many sublime traditions of Japanese Zen Buddhism. A one such koan simply says, the fish does not know it's swimming in water. It means that a person is not consciously aware of how the sociocultural paradigm he operates in is influencing certain aspects of his behavior, including his thoughts and feelings. For a fish to realize that it's swimming in water and fully appreciate the implications of that set of circumstances, it would have to be A, self-conscious, and B, able to pull itself up on dry land and observe other fish from that perspective. Likewise, for a person to fully understand how a certain paradigm, for example, the religious tradition he was born into, has shaped his or her behavior, he's got to be able to stand mentally outside the paradigm and observe the behavior of former fellow travelers who either don't realize they have the same choice or decide not to make it. And so it is with many, if not most, of today's moms who do not know that they are unwitting members of what I call the good mommy club. They don't know that they're members because they neither applied for nor did anyone else ever solicit their membership. Nonetheless, they are members in various degrees of good standing. The good mommy club is the water in which today's mothers, all too many of them, swim. It's the operative paradigm 
of American female parenting. And like our fish, the typical mother does not have any appreciation for how the Good Mommy Club is shaping and limiting her parenting behavior as well as her very definition of herself and experience of motherhood. More specifically, our typical mother fails to realize that she experiences child-rearing as a stressful enterprise, ridden with anxiety, anger, resentment, and guilt, not because those are the normal consequences of raising children, but because those are the consequences of belonging to the Good Mommy Club. History tells us that stress, anxiety, and the like have nothing to do with children. Over the course of my career as a so-called parenting expert, I've talked with many, many women who raised children in the 1940s, 1950s, before the Good Mommy Club sprang into being. Mind you, these women on average raised a lot more children than today's typical mother is raising, in some cases two or three times more. And when I asked these women if parenting was stressful, anxiety-ridden, and so on, they usually look at me as if I'm slightly daft, and the usual replies along the lines of, well, no, John, it was just something you did. Here are the 10 most common symptoms of membership in the Good Mommy Club. Do you experience near-constant stress, anxiety, and worry concerning your children and child-rearing matters? And, and by the way, I mean, when I list these 10 most common symptoms, these are the experiences of the typical American mother these days. This is not an anomalous situation. This is quite, quite typical. Do you experience near-constant stress, anxiety, worry, and guilt concerning your children and child-rearing matters? Do you have difficulty making decisions concerning your kids and child-rearing matters? Do you find yourself talking almost solely about children and child-rearing matters when in conversation with other mothers? Do you feel that your husband does not quite get it where parenting is concerned, that he requires your direction and supervision? Do you think that your singular dedication, devotion, and diligence determines whether or not your children succeed in school and ultimately life? Do you think almost constantly about your kids? Do you have great difficulty accepting that your children are capable of deliberate, premeditated wrongdoing? Do you often feel too worn out at the end of the day to give quality attention to your marriage? Do you sense that you and your husband are not on the same page concerning the kids? You may well point out that times have changed since our great-great-grandmothers were raising kids, and yes, they have, and that's the point. Children have not changed. In fact, children have not changed since God created human beings. Children are children. Every child has brought the same nature into the world, which is the same nature that every child who has not yet been born will also bring into the world. Each child expresses that nature in a unique way, but the nature has and always will be the same. Yes, what's changed is not children, it's the so-called times. 
When our great-great-grandmothers were raising kids, they did not have to contend with the very destructive peer pressure that emanates today from the Good Mommy Club. They didn't have to deal with it because the Good Mommy Club didn't exist back then. Its formation can be traced to when women were first told in the 1970s that they needed to pay a lot of positive attention to and become involved with their children. My job as a child was to pay attention to my mother. And it was also my job to keep my mother from getting involved. And how did I do that? Well, it was just understood. If I did the right thing, if I went to school and did the right thing, if I went out into the neighborhood and did the right thing, and at home if I did the right thing, my parents would not get involved. They would, and believe it or not, folks, this is a blessed situation, generally speaking. They would leave me alone. Experts, mostly mental health professionals and a smattering of pediatricians, told women, you got to pay a lot of attention to your kids, you got to get highly involved, and things have gone downhill, and especially for American mothers since then. Folks, we're up against a break. This is John Roseman. I'm your host. The show is Because I Said So. We're all about parenting and family issues. You can call us with your questions or comments at 404-419-6499. You can email your questions to radio at rosemond.com. That's radio at rosemond.com. Back with your calls after this. Welcome back to the show. Uh, We're called Because I Said So. I'm your host, John Roseman, and we're on American Family Radio, carried uh, nationwide on uh, all of their affiliate stations. And our number is 404-419-6499 if you want to call the show with your questions and comments about the topic, which is parenting in America. And we do, in fact, have a caller on the line. His name is Michael and Michael is from West Virginia. Michael, welcome to the show, and uh, tell me what's on your mind. Well, thank you for taking my call. Um, I wanted to talk about the culture wars and the things that we are getting and not getting on uh, television these days. Go right ahead. Okay, well, you almost never see a father character who is not portrayed as a total doofus. And you almost never see Christians portrayed in a good light. And when I was a kid in the 60s, there was a television show where you had a father who was not only brilliant and kind and brave, he was a father that would come to the rescue. And that was Professor John Robinson, as played by Guy Williams in Lost in Space. Lost in Space, exactly. And and while you were talking, I was thinking of another program, which might have been a little ahead of your time. I'm a child of the 50s, not the 60s. I was in elementary school from 52 to 60, and then went to high school, graduated in 65. But... Um, The program that I was thinking about was The Rifleman, and indeed, 
what you had on uh, television programming, the three major networks, they were just NBC, CBS, and ABC back then. And um, you picked them up with the old rabbit ears. Uh, what you had was a plethora, if you will, of programs in which fathers were uh, portrayed as competent, intelligent, uh, courageous uh, guys, uh, masculine guys who were uh, willing to sacrifice anything for the best interests of their children and their families. And indeed, uh, since the 1960s, what we see on television today are men portrayed as either uh, conservative, mean-spirited idiots, as in all in the family, or you find uh, the father being portrayed as a complete bumbling idiot. So you've gone from father knows best, the rifleman lost in space, and programming like that, including Ozzie and uh, Harriet and uh, the Donna Reed show and Leave it to Beaver. Uh, These were comedies, but the father was not being made fun of to today where uh, either the father is uh, just a a conservative, mean-spirited exaggeration of everything conservative in America or uh, is a bumbling idiot. Well, uh, well stated, Michael. So, what do you what do you think is the cultural and uh, sociological, if you will, implication of all this? Do you think this is art mimicking life, or life mimicking art, or a combination thereof? I think it's a disproportionately large pr- percentage of art uh, mimicking a disproportionately small portion of life. I also think that uh, the network executives are trying to push something. You know, the networks all claim to be competing with each other, but they act very much like they all get their marching orders from the same source. And what source would that be? I don't know for certain, but some behind-the-scenes manipulator who, yes, is out to get ratings and make money, but is also very interested in pushing things that he wants to push and suppressing things that he wants to suppress. Well, I don't think it's an individual. I would disagree with you there, but I mean, it's not a strong disagreement. What I think is that there's not some uh, evil uh, wizard behind the curtain, so to speak, but that uh, this is just reflective of the left-wing socialist agenda that is endemic to the major media in America. And, um, for example, Rush Limbaugh was listening to him the other day, and he was saying that uh, the major networks, including CSNBC and MSNBC, uh, basically are an arm of the Democrat Party in America. I don't think there's a, a guy behind the curtain. I think that this is just a reflection of the fact that all these people uh, agree on what America ought to look like and uh, how America ought to function. And uh, they all agree that the Constitution is an outmoded document and needs to be trashed and uh, that uh, if the president can't do something constitutionally, then he needs to, and he can't get the cooperation of Congress, 
He needs to just uh, affect what he wants to affect through executive action, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think this is a worldview issue. By the way, I think uh, as you were talking, I was remembering back to, because I've written some uh, newspaper articles on this and magazine articles on this uh, during the course of my career, this issue of fathers being portrayed as incompetent people. Um, uh, I take this back to a commercial on television was either late 50s or early 60s. It was a commercial for a laundry detergent, Tide, Cheer, whatever, in which uh, the father gets dressed in the morning and comes out uh, into the family area. And uh, his shirt apparently has some stain around the collar. And his wife and kids uh, begin dancing around him in a circle, uh, singing and pointing at him and singing, ring around the collar, ring around the collar. And that's where it all began, in my estimation. The guy turns red. He looks extremely embarrassed. Obviously, the kids and the wife are in total control of the family. Uh, He's a superfluous, rather comedic actor. Uh, a bumbling idiot, and that's where it started. And from there, you got all in the family where the head of the family was portrayed as a mean-spirited, conservative bigot, and, uh, you know, it's been downhill from there, Michael. Uh, Yes, and for some reason, I think the networks also want to prevent people from thinking about anyone doing anything in space. Okay, what is the significance of that? Well, uh, part of it is basically idea control, and part of it is that Hugo Gernsback's main purpose in publishing uh, Amazing Stories magazine was to get young people interested in learning about science and technology, and the TV networks today are run by people who are against young people learning science and technology. In fact, they will gladly portray somebody who is interested in those things as being inferior and subhuman. Yeah, well, I I don't know that I agree with uh, you on that either. I I see these uh, uh, people more or less portrayed as kind of geeky with inadequate social skills. So certainly the message to kids is uh, the subliminal message to uh, children who are watching programming like this is that, well, you don't want to be too smart because smart's not cool. Um, here is the, uh, the disadvantage that I'm in, Michael, when having a conversation of this sort. Um, my disadvantage is that my wife and I do not subscribe to cable television. Uh, we stream everything. We have Netflix, Amazon.com, uh, any any uh, source of media programming that can be streamed, we can obtain through our home wireless network. And all my wife and I watch basically is uh, English programs, uh, which almost, uh, you know, I don't know of any exceptions. They don't have any cursing. They don't have any explicit sex or even suggestions of explicit sex. We watch uh, British detective stories, uh, stories about World War II, Britain, uh, anything that might uh, come out of the BBC. 
And uh, by the way, I highly recommend that for uh, all of our listeners. Uh, the, um, the major networks uh, really do have an ideological agenda, which is expressed in a variety of ways. Let me give you an example of that. I was in the home of two people who are evangelical Christians. I happen to be in their home. I, I, uh, I'm not a friend of theirs per se. I'm an acquaintance. Uh, they invited me into their home because I was speaking at their church and uh, I wandered into the den where teenage boy, age 14, 15, was lounging on the sofa watching television and major network. And I said to him, uh, uh, what are you watching? And he said, in a rather cursory, uh, dismissive fashion, uh, the name of the show is blah, blah, blah. It's my favorite show. And I stood there for a second and quickly realized that this is a show about a girl, approximately age five, who, by the way, is very wise. She's wiser than any of the adults on the show. Um, more knowledgeable, got more common sense, et cetera, et cetera. And she is being raised by two homosexual men. I refuse to call them gay because uh, all of the objective uh, studies indicate that these aren't very gay, happy people at all. Of course, they would blame that on societal rejection, blah, blah, blah. But nonetheless, uh, being raised by two homosexual men. And I said... To this young man, I said, uh, oh, this is about uh, two homosexual guys raising a five-year-old girl or something like that. I don't, uh, I don't even think that uh, children, uh, homosexuals, should be allowed to adopt children. And the kid went, uh, we don't have to stand there and watch it if you don't want to. And I thought to myself, you know... The poisons, of the toxicity of the media, uh, all too many Christian parents allow that toxicity into their home uh, on a regular basis. Very, very unfortunate. Michael, we're right up against a hard break. Thanks for joining the show. Uh, very insightful comments. I appreciate them. Folks, we will be right back with more Because I Said So. Stay tuned. Family Radio Network, it's Because I Said So. Now once again, here's your host, John Rosemond. Welcome back to the show, folks. It's Because I Said So with your host, John Rosemond. And uh, we've got a caller on the line. Uh, his name is Nathan, and he's from Mountain View, Arkansas, which is a beautiful area of the United States. Um, as the name implies... Within view of in the foothills underneath the uh, Ozark Mountains and uh, not far, about 90 minutes away, driving time from Branson, Missouri. And uh, uh, probably a lot of you are familiar with Branson. You've been there. 
um, vacations or otherwise. Nathan, how you doing? I'm doing good. Good, good. Well, tell me uh, what's up. What's on your mind? Well, um, I was just wondering if you thought, because I've run across this all the time, that when disciplining the Bible verses, you know, that Proverbs thirteen twenty four says, He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth his him chasteneth him be times. A lot of people I know think that means punishment only. Well, that's an excellent question. I think that means spanking. Yeah, they think it means spanking. And, uh, you know, I, I've got a somewhat controversial position on the issue of spanking. We can get into that, hopefully, in, in yeah. the time that we have. But first of all, the Bible makes it very, very clear. God makes it very, very clear that discipline is not primarily about spanking. Uh, it's right. not primarily about punishment. His first instruction to parents, uh, and, and it does uh, involve discipline, the root word of which is disciple. And so really, the, the word means the process by which you turn a child into, transform a child into a disciple. Right. And here's the way I describe it in front of audiences. I say it's the process by which you transform the antisocial toddler who is a factory of antisocial behavior. You transform the antisocial toddler into a pro-social human being who exhibits three fundamental characteristics. And, and, you know, this is not all that's involved. But number one, respect for legitimate authority. He looks up to you. Number two, he follows your lead. That's called obedience. And number three, he subscribes to your values. That's called loyalty. It's respect, obedience, and loyalty. And and again, there is more to it, but that's rather the core of uh, of what's involved in the disciplinary process. Yeah. And God's first instruction to parents along these lines is found in Deuteronomy chapter six, verses six and seven, and it's translated in various ways. I think the NIV translates it pretty much along these lines. I don't have it up in front of me, but impress these commandments upon your children. And then it goes on to describe some of the times as you walk along the road, as you prepare for bed in the evening, I believe it says. And basically what it boils down to is impress these commandments upon your children at every possible opportunity. The commandments, the law, uh, were the values, the God-given values in, in uh, behavioral terms, if you will, that uh, that bonded the Hebrew tribes together into one community. And so for our purposes in, in uh, this day and time, we can translate that this way. Impress biblical values upon your children. And this is more or less reiterated in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, which is often misunderstood, which says, uh, train up your child in, uh, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. It, it begins by saying, fathers, do not exasperate your children, uh, provoke your children to wrath, but 
bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, a lot of people just, you know, they leave it off at, at half of the verse. Fathers, do yeah. not uh, exasperate your children. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. But that's not what it says. If you, if you take it out of context like that, it's easily misunderstood. Yeah. The entire verse says, fathers, do not exasperate your children or provoke them to wrath instead or but and that's that's the word upon which the entire verse turns if you will bring them up in the training and instruction of the lord teach them to think properly and this is what the disciplinary process is all about it's about instilling proper values into your children and of course we in the christian community would uh, agree that uh those values are all biblically based, biblically derived, given to us by God. So, number one, in answer to your question, uh, the disciplinary process does not uh, primarily involve punishment of children uh, or even the correction of behavior. What it involves is teaching children to think properly. Now, this understanding has drifted by the wayside over the last 50 years ever since we began in America to uh, to subscribe to a child-rearing paradigm that is based on psychological theory. And one component of that is behavior modification theory. Yeah. And when behavior modification theory became popularized in America— In the late 60s and early 70s, what happened is that people began focusing strictly on teaching children to behave correctly. And yes, that is part of the disciplinary process. But if you only teach children proper behavior and you don't teach them the values, the biblical values, the biblical principles that form the foundation of, that inform that behavior, then you run the risk of simply teaching children how to be manipulative, how to do the right thing in order to get their way with people, in order to take advantage of people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, one of the things that I hear from teachers, uh, private, public, uh, parochial Christian, it doesn't matter, Uh, all over the country is how manipulative children are today versus, and I'm talking about having conversations with teachers who have been teaching for 30 years or even more. These people have seen the change that has occurred uh, in children, the changes that have occurred in children uh, over the last uh, 30, even 40 years in some cases. And uh, one of the things, again, that they consistently say is that children today are extremely manipulative. Um, When we go to uh, the subject of spanking, um, here's my controversial position. uh, A proper understanding of the word rod is absolutely necessary in translating uh, the verses in Proverbs, properly understanding, properly translating 
doing proper what's called biblical exegesis on the verses in Proverbs that refer to the rod in the context of the discipline or raising of children. If you use the principle that Scripture interprets Scripture, and you look at the use of the word rod across the entirety of God's Word, uh, you will see very quickly that the word rod is used in two entirely different ways. Number one, it's preceded by the article A, a rod. And when it is preceded by the article A, it very clearly refers to a concrete object. Yeah. The scepter held by a king that was a uh, symbol of his authority, uh, the shepherd's rod that was used to herd his flock, uh, a measuring rod that is used to keep things in alignment and so on and so forth. And the second way that it's used is preceded by the article the, the rod. Uh, again, if you look at the use of the term rod across Scripture, you will see that when the word rod is preceded by the article the, it is clearly metaphorical. Uh, in one, for example, uh, biblical verse, there is reference to the rod of God's mouth. Now, clearly, this does yeah. not believe uh, mean that a concrete, cylindrical, long con- uh, cylindrical object uh, protrudes from God's mouth. It's a representation of his authority. That's what it is. It's a reference yeah. to his uh, overarching supreme authority in the universe. And so when you look at these verses of Proverbs— in which the use, the, the word rod is used in the context of the discipline or raising of children, in every single instance, Nathan and our listeners, the word rod is preceded by the metaphorical the. Now, yeah. in my estimation, what this means is that parental authority ought to be a godly authority. And one of the things that I point out to parents all the time when I'm in my public speaking capacity or role is that parental authority is assigned by God, which is, by the way, one of the reasons why parents do not ever need to justify to a child any decision that they have made. Their authority is God-assigned. It is God-derived. And therefore, it is, where their children are concerned, absolute. And this is what the words, the rod, in that particular context, I am convinced anyway, uh, are referring to. Not necessarily a spanking, although it does not, the use of the term the rod does not exclude a spanking either, but it does not prescribe specifically a spanking. Nathan, there's that music, and uh, uh, I appreciate your call, man. That was an excellent question. Uh, I, I've, uh, I'm really very engaged in this, and I hope that our listeners are too. And uh, it's, it's about a topic that's uh, close to my heart. Um, I'd like you to stay on the line. We're going to have to take a break, but uh, 
I'd like to come back to you and continue this. Folks, we'll be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back to the show, folks. The show is Because I Said So. I'm your host, John Roseman, and uh, this is a show that's all about parenting, uh, how to raise children properly in a godly, biblical way. And uh, got a caller on the line, uh, Nathan, who was with us for the last segment of the program. Nathan is from Mountain View, Arkansas, beautiful place. And uh, Nathan has called in with a question about uh, discipline uh, to bring you up to speed. He, uh, his original question was, to the effect, is discipline all about punishment? And we've proceeded from there into a very, very important discussion of uh, spanking and uh, the biblical basis for spanking, or the supposed biblical basis for spanking, as it turns out. So, uh, Nathan, welcome back. Thanks very much for letting me be on the radio and stuff. And Nathan, I sense uh, that you and I are on the same page about this uh, this topic. What do you think? No, I agreed 100% with what you were saying. It's a, I'm passionate about it because I've been raising children for the last 30 years. I've got a 9-year-old right now, and I have a 30-year-old, and I have four kids. And um, I've had a lot of people criticize me by the fact that I think the word chastisement does not mean spanking. I think it means instruct, because it comes from the Hebrew word. I slaughter it, but mukar, I think is how you say it. The Hebrew word for chastise it means to instruct, to discipline, and learning. Exactly. And that's when I try to tell people that, it's just like, they think I should spank my daughter more often instead of um, trying to instruct her in what she's doing. I don't try to correct as much as I try to give instructions. I completely agree that, that chastise does mean, uh, and I've looked at the Hebrew derivation of that as well, it means to instruct, it means to instruct with godly authority. Right, exactly. And um, I, I'm afraid that in the Christian community, people have been entirely too uh, uh, hung up on this idea that children need to be spanked when they misbehave. That, that God, yeah. I keep saying to people, uh, again, in my public speaking role, God is not a methods guy. God is giving us a, a a set of principles by which to raise children, not a set of methods. That's what psychologists have been doing for the last right. uh, for the last fifty years. And see, I just quit going to a school that I was going to because I want to get my pastoral counseling degree. And they haven't cracked a Bible in two and a half years, but I've been taking nothing but psychology courses. And I just quit that school, and I want to start going to Mid-American Christian University to get my um, ministerial training and stuff through a Christian-based school where I won't have to be in a bunch of psychology courses. Well, you won't uh, believe—well, you probably will believe how many times I've heard the same uh, comment, complaint from people who have been um, through— pastoral counseling programs or have had some exposure to them that uh, many of these, including, I understand, such prominent Christian universities as Biola in Los uh, Angeles, um, how these programs uh, have bought completely into psychological theory. And uh, what an unfortunate thing, because I say this over and over and over again, 
that uh, psychological theory and biblical principle are are night and day. They, they yeah, are opposed exactly. to each other. They are not complementary. No, they're not. I had to take a criminology class, and the teacher asked what I thought the basis for criminal behavior was, and I told him it was the depravity of human nature, and he told me I was wrong. And this was in a Christian college? Yeah, and I said, well, that is the answer. <laughs> well, yeah, that is the answer. That is precisely the answer. But the the psychologically correct answer has to do with social factors, poverty, yeah, bad exactly. parenting, et cetera, et cetera. All of these uh, all of these ideas that became popular in the nineteen sixties, and, and this is one of the the biggest failings of the church, in my estimation. And of course, I'm not. Uh, I sound like I'm painting with a broad brush here, but uh, in fact, I do recognize that there are. Uh, there, you know, this is not a, a, uh, a universally applicable comment. There are plenty of churches that this does not apply to, but it's a huge failing of the church that uh, so many pastors have bought into psychological theory. And, and part of the reason yeah. being they've been through these divinity programs just uh, that, uh, that expose them to the psychological theory and validate this psychological theory, and the and these guys come out of uh, uh, these pastoral training programs believing in things like uh, you know high self esteem being a good thing. A bunch of atheists taught about a bunch of stuff. The Bible says lean not on your own understanding, and these people were leaning on their own understanding. Right, and I keep saying to people, we shouldn't. You know, it doesn't mean not only lean, don't lean on your own understanding. It means don't lean on any man's understanding. And that's right, exactly. also represented in Colossians 2.8, where Paul says, you know, take care that you're not uh, uh, caught under the sway of a deceptive philosophy that depends on man's own understandings. And, you know, Proverbs 3.5, lean not on your own understandings, it, it, you know that you can be expanded if if every single one of us is not to lean on our own understanding then what that means is we're not to lean on anybody else's independent right. understandings as well and you know all of this is so so vitally important to uh you know putting these comments uh these verses these biblical verses that you uh referred to that are found in Proverbs concerning the discipline of children in a proper context, uh, Nathan. So, uh, wow, I, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so glad that you, uh, that you called with this uh, question. It, it's a great question. Yeah. It really and truly is. It's, Thank it's you. something people need to hear, as I think. I just really think they need to hear it. I've been praying a lot, and I've been wanting that, that message to get out, and I didn't know how to get the message out with, without reaching out to, like, a, a radio audience and I want people to get out there and understand that disciplining your children is important when it comes to teaching and instructing. Well, here's the thing along those lines. I'm absolutely uh, sure, uh, certain, that there are people in this listening audience today who do not agree with what I just said. Oh, yeah. Who do not agree with what you just said. And, uh, you know, this is a very, very controversial topic in the Christian community. It deserves to be controversial because we need to have a lively conversation 
about this uh, this ubiquitous belief in the in the uh, Orthodox Christian community that uh, these verses refer to the spanking of children. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, just you know, one of the things I say to audiences is this: think how absurd it would be if every time a child misbehaves, you spank him. Every time a yeah. sinful child does something sinful, you spank him. I mean, you'd be spanking two and three year old children all day long, virtually. That's absurd. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, Nathan, thank you so much uh, for your call. Oh, you're welcome. Really appreciate uh, your willingness to come on the air with us. Um, the conversation reminded me of a story that I'd like to uh, regale you with. Uh, I was a guest on The View once. This was a number of years ago. And Barbara Walters, who was still part of the show, began the discussion by saying, John, I understand that you believe in spanking. Um, and, and she just let the statement hang there. And I said, uh, no, I don't. Uh, Walters looked panicked. I mean, for good reason. She was confident that I was going to admit to being a mean-spirited, right-wing Neanderthal posing as a parenting expert and had planned the interview accordingly. I had upset her plans, and she didn't know what to say. And so, playing the consummate gentleman, after a few moments of silence, I rescued her. And during this time, she was looking like a deer in the headlights because, you know, on these programs, when your opening salvo doesn't work, you don't know where to go from there. These people are basically reading scripts. Uh, I rescued her. I said, the idea that one believes in spanking makes it sound like a religious doctrine uh, no, uh, from that point of view, I don't believe in it, but I do think it's an appropriate response to some misbehavior with some children sometimes. Well, relief flooded her face, and the discussion proceeded from there to nowhere, which is where such primetime discussions usually go. Uh, here's my position in a nutshell on spankings. I think, first of all, parents should exercise the option to spank very conservatively, occasionally, infrequently, if for no reason other than the more a child is spanked, the less effective any given spanking is going to be. Secondly, most parents spank badly such that their spankings accomplish nothing and may even make matters worse. Thirdly, some children respond well to spankings, some don't. If you've got a child who does not respond well to spankings, uh, spanking them more isn't going to make things any better. The spankings per se uh, don't constitute abuse, but a spanking can be administered abusively, as can any other consequence. And a careful reading of the Bible, as I was uh, discussing with Nathan, does not compel the conclusion that God wants parents to spank misbehaving children every time they misbehave. If you'd like to find out more about my position on spanking or any other specific parenting issue for that matter, you can go to my website at johnrosemond.com or my other website at parentguru.com or your local library. Check out my, uh, my newspaper columns, my newspaper column archive on parentguru.com. Uh, the book in which I discuss spanking at length is uh, a book called Parent Babble. And the book is all about how 
The last 50 years of professional advice has just thrown monkey wrench after monkey wrench into American child rearing. Folks, we're right up against the end of the show. My name's John Roseman. We'll be back next week, 5 o'clock Central. And I want you to be with us next week. Why? Because I said so. From Creative Genius Productions and the American Family Radio Network, take care. God bless. God bless.